shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Jew with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat service here at B'nai Shalom. Uh, we're glad to have you. We know you have a choice of where to be on Friday evening. We're glad that you've joined us here for this Sabbath and in fellowship with us. A uh, couple of quick announcements before we do Kiddush and get our Sabbath underway. Um, we are, of course, planning... Uh, for some conferences and events later on this year. Tabernacles coming in September, as well as Hanukkah coming in December. We're holding specific conferences and events for those items. If you'd like to be a part of those, tabernaclesevent.com is where you can register for Tabernacles. And then the other one is hanukkahevent.com. Hanukkah spelled with two Ks. Uh, in there, and you can register and be a part of that. All right, the, we're excited uh, to um, getting ready for Sukkot, and as a matter of fact, the staff has told me that we have more than 500 people have already registered for Tabernacles, well on our way to hosting more than a 1,000 this year. We'd love to have you be a part of it. It's a great treat and thrill uh, to come to the camp and see a thousand of your like-minded brethren coming and worshiping the Lord, especially all the young people that come and dance before the Lord. It's a joyous time, as the commandment is, to rejoice before the Lord, the double commandment. Come and be a part of it. We'd love to have you to be a part of it. All right. Without any further ado, let's get our Sabbath underway with Kiddush. Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah the light of the world Amen Amen and now the Kiddush blessing over the cup Baruch Atadonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Prihagafen Amen Blessed art thou Lord our God King of the universe who creates the fruit of the vine Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we 
we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. <laughs> Husbands, let's bless our wives. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful wives that you've given to us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for beautiful wives of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for my wife and the blessing that she is to our home and to our family. Bless her, encourage her, and strengthen her as she teaches and educates the children, as she wakes up in the morning to take care of them and see about the ways of the household. Father, I thank you for the wonderful blessing she is to me and to our home. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. So we love you and bless you and thank you for all of these things, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach Baruch Arunai Hamvorach Le'olam Vahed Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha Ba'elim Adonai Michamocha Nedahar Bachodesh Nohorat Echilot Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. 
Veshamru Vene Israel et Hashabat, La Sot et Hashabat, Ladrotam, Barit Olam, Bene Ovayom, Bene Israel, Othit Leolam, Keshashet Yamim Asadunai, et Hashmaim, Vet Haret, Vayom Hashavi, Shavat, Vainafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you'd all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed, Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol meodecha, v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha ha'yom alevavcha, v'shinantam lavanecha, all together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men dream dreams. I'll pour out my spirit. My servants will prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heavens and signs in the earth below. Yes, in that day.
So I cry as you were. 
Holy, holy, 
you're the son of God you are awesome God of power Lord of glory
you are awesome, God of power, Lord of glory, come and fill this place, you are awesome, God of power, Lord of glory, come and fill this place. You are awesome. Keep me to your Keep me to your If you would please turn your Bibles to the book of Numbers, to chapter 19, where our Torah portion of Hukat will begin for this week. And as you are opening the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher b'charbanu mikol ha'amim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-torah ha-amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. As I said, our Torah portion is entitled Hukat, which comes from the first phrase of chapter 19, which means, Hukat means ordinance. And so what we have is we have another commandment that is given to Moses to give to the children of Israel here at the beginning of our Torah portion. Our portion will extend through uh, chapter 19, 20, and 21 of the book of Numbers. Several different stories and things happen in our Torah portion, and I hope to draw out some of the uh, parallels and the lessons we can learn from this Torah portion. As we go and we study the Torah, for those of us who are messianic, what we're often looking for is the parallels to Messiah Yeshua. We profess a faith in Yeshua of Nazareth as being our Messiah. Yet we also look back at the commandments of old, we teach the Torah, and we try to keep the commandments to the best of our ability because we believe God has commanded for us to follow him, to walk uprightly before him, and to keep these commandments. We study the Torah and we see some of these parallels. For some of our other brethren, our Jewish brethren, they study the Torah and they teach these lessons and they draw out um, all the different things you can learn from these stories of old as they study the Torah. However, they do not believe in Yeshua of Nazareth as being the Messiah. And then our New Covenant brethren believe in the Messiah, but they don't study out of the Old Testament. They think that it's kind of old, it's done away with, that, that those don't have any applicability anymore. However, for us who are messianic, when we study the Torah, we see the Messiah in so many things, in so many stories, so many parallels to what he did, what his testimony was, and what he will do in the future. We see those parallels when we study the Torah. 
This Torah portion is one of my favorites because it has some of the most compelling parallels to Yeshua, the Messiah. I dare say this portion has almost more parallels to the Messiah than perhaps some other Torah portions or maybe any other Torah portion. Let me start here by uh, talking about, here in chapter 19, the curious case of the commandment to do with the red heifer. Let me read here in chapter 19, and let me, as I read, I want you to listen for maybe some of the parallels or some of the signs that might lend itself to Messiah Yeshua, his sacrifice, what he did for us. After I'm done, I hope to bring out maybe some of these other ones that you might not have noticed. Let me now read Numbers chapter 19, beginning verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that you will bring, they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect, and on which a yoke has never come. You shall give it to Eliezer the priest, that he may take it outside the camp, and shall be slaughtered before him. And Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, and sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its hide, its flesh, its blood, and its offal shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet, and cast them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and shall bathe in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp, and the priest shall be unclean until evening. And the one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, bathe in water, and shall be unclean until evening. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It shall be a statute forever to the children of Israel and to the stranger who dwells among them. He who touches a dead body of anyone shall be unclean for seven days. He shall purify himself with water on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanliness is still on him. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. All who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever is in the open field and touches one who is slain by a sword or who has died or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the red red heifer, burnt for purification from sin, and running water shall be put on them in a vessel. And a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent and on all the vessels and on the persons who were there, and on the one who touched a bone, the slain, the dead, or a grave. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, and bathe in water. And at evening he shall be clean. 
But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly, because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. It shall be a perpetual statute for them. He who sprinkles the water of purification shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water of purification shall be unclean until evening. Whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean clean until evening. So here we have a story, a commandment about the purification of one who has become unclean. We've spent a great amount of time in our Torah cycle teaching about uncleanliness. In the book of Leviticus, we talked about many times what makes somebody unclean, that many things defiled them, many things made them unclean, specifically touching a dead body, and that they could not go and worship the Lord at the tabernacle when someone was ritually unclean. So here we have this commandment to take a red heifer without spot, without blemish, and that this was sacrificed and used to purify people who had become unclean. Now, in the history of Israel, um, if you go into to the, the history books and try to study this and learn about this more, it, we know, as far as we know, that only nine of these sacrifices ever took place in the history of Israel, going back to the wilderness and into the temple period, the first and second temple period. One thing that is kind of an issue with this is finding a perfect uh, red heifer that is without spot, without blemish. The rabbis have a lot of rules and stipulations about this, as you may have heard and seen and studied that sometimes people are looking for a red heifer or there's a farmer who has a red heifer. And so then it's examined if it possibly could be one of the heifers that could be used for the sacrifice. And they have rules that if you find even three white hairs on that cow, that it then become that it's not uh, proper to be used for this sacrifice. It has to be completely red, without spot, without blemish. And so you might have heard that some people have been looking for this. You might have also heard archaeologists are looking for the ashes of the red heifer. What they are doing is they're looking for that clean place, some jar that had these ashes, so that they could be used for purification in some future altar service. Now, one thing also is if you read the commentaries on this from Judaism about this commandment, about the red heifer, you'll actually find many rabbis do not understand how all of this works. This is the only case in which a procedure is done in the altar service in which somebody, who, in this case, somebody who does this sprinkling becomes unclean without actually physically coming into contact with something else that is unclean. We have this purification here. Somebody becomes unclean. They touch a dead body. Then a priest sprinkles them with water and with hyssop. He doesn't actually touch them. He doesn't touch anything unclean. He does the sprinkling, and the person who does this becomes unclean. The ra- this is perplexing to the rabbis in which how is this, how does that make someone unclean? Isn't it because you physically touch something, the dirt, the look at your hands, you can see something makes you unclean? What we have here is we have an instance in which we're talking about spiritual uncleanliness. It's not just in the physical, but it's also in the spiritual. And so we have a precedent here in the scripture that somebody can do a service or a work for somebody else who is unclean and that they can take that uncleanness and then it's then put upon themselves. This is perplexing to the the rabbis and trying to understand exactly how this works. For those of us that believe in Yeshua the Messiah, 
We look at this and we see the parallel. We see that through him, his sacrifice, our belief in him, he took our sin, he took our punishment, he took our uncleanness, put it upon himself, and that then he has made us clean as a result of that service. And we don't have to have physically touched him or physically interacted with that Messiah for that service to be done for us. This is encouraging to us in our faith in the modern day, those that were not alive 2,000 years ago that got to actually see him walk the earth. But for us, we understand the spiritual nature of his service for us. And we have that precedent for us here biblically. It's, it's not a wonder that the rabbis don't necessarily understand this or they don't see the parallel. With many things that the rabbis don't understand in the scripture, they often say, oh, well, we don't understand this, but the Messiah will explain it to us because they are looking for a coming Messiah. They just don't believe Yeshua of Nazareth was the Messiah. But they do look to, to the Messiah and they say, well, the Messiah will explain this. The other commandment that they do that with is the commandment having to do with the cleansing of the leper. That long, elaborate procedure for somebody stricken with leprosy and that they would come back into the camp, be declared if they were had become clean, there was then an entire procedure and sacrifice and, and in the altar service for seven days that then they would become officially announced as clean by the priest. It's interesting also that there is a parallel here to the red heifer sacrifice and the cleansing of the leper. We have this uh, instance where the priest is to throw a couple of materials in with the sacrifice. It says cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet material. The only other times that those materials are used anywhere in the altar service is at the cleansing of the leper. That those items were used in the process of that. So we have the presence of these materials in these both of these sacrifices, yet both of these different uh, altar procedures, uh, the, priest, the Jews don't really understand. What, is this, what does this have to do with, with anything? Well, I believe it has to do with the Messiah. And for those of us that can read and study the stories of what the Messiah did, we can see some of these parallels. I personally believe that the Messiah and his sacrifice parallels every other type of sacrifice that occurred in the altar service. From the water libation ceremony on Sukkot, to the Passover lamb, to being a sin sacrifice, to being a free will offering, to being and paralleling also the sacrifice of the red heifer. It would not surprise me at all that if during the crucifixion of the Messiah that all three of those materials were present. We do know the hyssop was there because the hyssop is a branch that was used to lift up the sponge with the gall when the Messiah said from the cross that he was thirsty. They said they used a branch of hyssop to give that to him. So that was present. It wouldn't surprise me that the cross beam of the cross when he was hung on a tree could have been a strong beam of cedar. And then scarlet material, well, you know he was beaten, he was crushed, he was flogged, and that there was blood present, that if there was any garment on him or any piece of fabric anywhere near him, there would have been blood present. So this scarlet material was present as well. So this sacrifice of the Messiah, in my mind, parallels all of these things and and. and took place very similarly to this red heifer sacrifice. The parallel doesn't stop there. Where this sacrifice was taking place during the time of the temple was at another altar that was on the Mount of Olives. 
This was to be done outside the camp. And so in the times of the first and second temple, there was a priestly bridge that went across the Kidron Valley to the east of Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount. And there was another altar and another place set up on the Mount of Olives where this sacrifice would take place. And so that's where the burning would take place. That's where they would gather the ashes, all of these things. For those of us that studied the crucifixion of the Messiah, we believe his sacrifice took place on the Mount of Olives. That it was across the Kidron Valley. That it was because the, the uh, testimony of the centurion at the base of the cross could see the temple, could see the veil rent. The only place that a Gentile can see those things is on the Mount of Olives. And so we believe that's where the Messiah was crucified. It could have been very near or at the same place that this altar that took place. Again, like I said, this only happened nine times in history. I bet this altar may have sat dormant for a period of time before it was used for the sacrifice of the red heifer. It was kind of, it probably was just kind of there. It was around. And so other things happened in the area more than likely. This could have been the place where the Messiah himself was crucified. So again, those parallels, the parallel that the red heifer had to be without spot, without blemish. Yeshua himself was a man without sin, without blemish, so that he could be the pure and spotless lamb and the sacrifice for our salvation. All of those things. The other thing, also interesting, when the ashes were gathered up, they were taken to a clean place. That and it's very specifically mentioned in the Gospels that when Yeshua was laid in a tomb, it was a clean, unused tomb that he was laid. So after the sacrifice takes place, the gathering up of the remains of that sacrifice was then taken up by a clean person and put in a clean place. There's another parallel. All of these things all connect back to the Messiah. One of the other things that's great for this, it says here, as it does in other places, that this was for the children of Israel, the native born, and the stranger who dwells among him. This sacrifice and this procedure was able to be done for anyone. It didn't have to be naturally born. And as we believe with the Messiah, when he died, his salvation is for the whole world, for the sake of anyone who professes a faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, native born or not, his sacrifice is able to be had for anyone of any descendancy. And so that is an encouragement to those that maybe don't know what your heritage is. That doesn't matter. The waters of purification were for you. The sacrifice of Yeshua and his salvation from his blood is for you as well. So, very interesting uh, commandment here talking about the red heifer. Our story now shifts and changes, but goes back to from giving us a new commandment to the story of what's happening to Moses and the children of Israel. It says here at chapter 20, the children of Israel, the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month and the people stayed at Kadesh and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now, there was no water for the congregation. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses, saying, If only we had died with our brethren before the Lord. Why have you brought us to this assembly of the Lord? Into the wilderness, that we and our animals should die here. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt and bring us to this evil place? Is it not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates? Nor is there any water to drink? So Moses and Aaron went up from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting. They fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord has appeared to them. 
Haven't we heard something kind of like this before? You know, when the glory of the Lord appears, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces, and somebody goes and complains to Moses. Yeah, last week's Torah portion of Korah, we saw exactly this happen. Didn't end up so well for the people who were coming and grumbling before Moses. Didn't end up well from Korah, Dathan, and Aviram. Didn't end up well for the 250 princes of Israel, or a whole bunch of other people of the congregation. When this happens, people die. Not a great thing. So we're sitting here, we just lost the water. The water, apparently, there's no water to drink. And so they're worried about dying because there's no water. Well, you can survive for a few days, but if you go and grumble against Moses, the glory of the Lord appears, you're not going to live for two days. You're going to live for less. You would think they would learn this lesson. Now, one of the things we don't know is we don't know exactly how long, how much time has passed between the rebellion of Korah or between these things. It says Miriam died. We believe that probably happened toward the end of the 40 years of the journeys in the, in the wilderness. And then the um, rebellion of Korah, we don't know if that happened in the middle. We don't know if that happened early on. We, we don't know the passage of time. However, we do know that there still is older members of this generation generation that are still yet to pass away in the wilderness before the children of Israel will go into the land. What's interesting here, and, and this, you kind of, the first verse just sort of is like a, is just an exposition of Miriam, yeah, Miriam died. It, it, so this was a terrible thing. Miriam was the sister of Moses. He loved his sister. He loved his brother. There, there was a connection between the three of them throughout this entire process, and she dies. The very next verse says that there was no water for the congregation to drink. Now, the rabbis have said, many other Torah teachers have, have taught and, and looked at this. Is there a connection there between Miriam and the water? Why did the, You might ask and you say, why was there no water for the congregation? We never had this complaint before, ever since Rephidim and Exodus, um, when Moses struck the rock, they had no water. He strikes the rock, water comes forth. We have water from the rock. And then we go through the wilderness. They stay at Mount Sinai for a while. Then they go. Then they go into Kadesh. Then they try to attempt to take the land. Why was there never any complaint about water ever again? Well, it's interesting here that there's a lot of theories. There's a lot of legends associated with this water. If you read in First Corinthians chapter 10, we have a story where uh, Paul is speaking, talking about how all the children of Israel, that they all ate the same spiritual meat, they all drank the same spiritual drink, they drank the water from the rock, and that rock was the Messiah. It also says there, a very curious phrase in, in 1 Corinthians 10, that says that the rock followed them in the wilderness. Now, this is actually something some people have speculated, that this rock, this supernatural rock that provided water, that it's almost like it was present in the camp and went and moved with them. Now, for some of us, we might say, and we're like, that sounds kind of strange, that's, that, that sounds magical or mythological or something. And so we might speculate and say, I don't know if I really believe that. Now, did, that, did they go to a new place and Moses struck a rock every time he got there and then there was water and he created all the springs that the children of Israel needed as they traveled? Were there rivers and were there you know, streams that provided water? Then they didn't need water. Again, that, those details are not given for us. Many theories about this rock. There's another one that's also interesting that if this be true... It actually parallels the Messiah without the Jewish author even knowing it. Another legend to do with the rock when it was struck was that when it first was struck, that what came out first was blood from the rock, then the blood turned to water. Interesting sort of theory there, and it again sounds kind of magical or strange for some of us. However, 
If that legend be true, there's another parallel to the Messiah that when his side was pierced with a spear, out came water and blood. And that if that was the rock of salvation, the rock that provided water in the wilderness, then there's another parallel to that rock being the Messiah there with the children of Israel. Again, we don't know what the connection is. Why did the water stop? Though we do connect it with Miriam and that she was no longer present in the camp. If you look at the uh, Hebrew name for Miriam and the Hebrew letters, it's made of a mem, a resh, a yod, and a final mem. Out of Miriam's name, if you take that resh out, you create mayam, which means water. So there, you can draw that very simple parallel that you can spell water out of Miriam's name. Also, many stories to do with Miriam all were connected with water. Miriam, when we first hear about her, it was after Moses was laid in the bulrushes in the Nile in an ark, and she watched from afar to see what was going to happen, to, to check on him in the water there. And it's obviously he was drawn up out uh, of the water by Pharaoh's daughter. She then came to Pharaoh's daughter and says, hey, uh, do you need a nurse for that baby? The, Pharaoh's daughter knew it was a Hebrew child. And so she goes and it's like, yes. And so then she goes back to her mom, Yocheved. And Yocheved actually got to nurse Moses in the house of Pharaoh's daughter for the first two years of his life. And that this is one of the first time we hear about Miriam having to do with water. She also is the one that sang the Michmolka, the first song of Moses. Who is like the Lord with timbrel and with song, with dance? She led the congregation after they crossed the Red Sea. And so water is tied to Miriam. Also interestingly tied to Miriam is all of these things to do with rebellion. In fact, that's what the name Miriam means, is rebellion. The root word there, meri, a mem, a resh, and a yod, means rebellion or contention. And so when the waters came from the rock the first time, it was called the waters of Meribah, which means they, because they contended with them. And so the name of Miriam is very much tied to some of these rebellions, tied to water, and all of these things. And she was somehow a part of all of this thing to do with water. So she dies, she passes away. Now, one of the things that's kind of lost in this story sometimes is what was Moses and Aaron's state of mind when this all happened? They just lost their sister. She just died. She's not there anymore. Do you think did they have time to, to grieve at, at any point in time before the children of Israel are coming and, and, and contending with them and arguing with them? Why couldn't the children of Israel just come and just say, hey, Moses, hey, we're out of water. Can you do something with the staff again? Like, just ask the question instead of complaining. Is that what they did? No, of course not. They just came and they just started complaining and arguing and we don't have any food to eat and this place is miserable and we're in the wilderness and it'd be better if we had died with our brethren back when Korah did his thing. It's like, again, they're complaining. They don't, they don't ask the question. And then as the story continues, we can see kind of the frustration of Moses and Aaron. If we read on, verse 7 of chapter 20. The Lord speaks to Moses saying, Take the rod and your brother Aaron. Gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water from them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice 
with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and the animals drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. So this is the story. This is the time in which Moses, Aaron, they lost their cool. And because they did not believe God, they were not allowed to take the children of Israel into the promised land. You would think Moses and Aaron, being the leaders that they were, that surely if anyone's going to cross the Jordan, go into the promised land with the children of Israel, the second generation that came out of Egypt, you think it would have been them. But no. They lost their cool in this situation. On one hand, like I said before, they were just grieving for the loss of their sister. Frustration absolutely could take place. You know, that's not an unnatural reaction that they had. Some might think, shouldn't the Lord have been more forgiving to them in that state of mind? But the lesson for, that can be taught to anyone, especially those that are in leadership, is that even in times of hardship, even in times of grieving, you've got to set that aside to do what is right and follow the Lord when he's commanded you to do something. He told them what to do, and they didn't do it. Regardless of what state of mind you're in, regardless of what's going on back at home, regardless of what's all, all, all of these things, you've got a job to do if you are to be the leader in the sight of the eyes of the congregation of Israel on how to act, how to behave. And Moses didn't do that. And when we come here, the commandment was to speak to the rock. Speak to the rock. But take the rod with you. Why is that? Why are we taking this rod that, we, that when before was used to strike the rock and water came out before, why are we going and taking the rod if we're not going to strike the rock again? Well, this rod, now there's other theories about this rod. People ask whether Moses had a rod and Aaron had a rod, whether they were one and the same, whether they were two different ones at different times. As far as we can tell, it just says, take the rod, you and Aaron, take the rod. Well, what are we talking about here? Well... If we go back just a couple of chapters, there was a story having to do with this rod. Rod of Aaron was put in front of the tabernacle of meeting with, 12, with 11 other rods. And it sprouted blossoms. It sprouted buds, ripe almonds, blossoms. That it was a resurrection of life that was from our last week's Torah portion. And that this was to stand as a sign for the people to see to against the rebels, anyone who would rebel against the Lord or against the leadership that the Lord has anointed. That's what the rod was for. That's why we were taking it. So they start going out to this rock and it's like, here, we got this rod. Remember what this was about? Maybe they didn't. Maybe they'd forgotten. And that rod was to, they look upon this miraculously sprouted almond rod to know, hey, maybe we shouldn't have rebelled the way that we did. And then they were supposed to go and then just, just let me show you how to get water from this rock. Let me show you how to come to the Lord or come to a leader and ask for, rather than coming and complaining, come speak to it. Speak to the rock. That's what the children of Israel could have done. Come to Moses and Aaron, speak to Moses and Aaron and say, hey, is there, can you go petition the Lord? We, we need water in the congregation. Can you do something about that? Did they come and do that? No. So... Lord is giving Moses a lesson to teach them, hey, this is actually how you do it. But Moses didn't do that. If you run the story through your head and you show Moses doing this exactly if he had done it appropriately, the children of Israel would have taken a step back and just be like, wow, that's all I have to do to receive the waters of salvation is to speak? Yeah, that's all you have to do. 
But unfortunately, we didn't have that lesson in this example of Moses doing that. He got frustrated and he strikes the rock twice. Again, I don't know when Moses realized his mistake. If he struck it once and water didn't come out. And he's like, uh, what do I do now? Maybe hit it a little harder. And then water comes out. Oh, good. Thank God. Yeah. It's like, God, thanks for the water. Yeah, thanks for nothing. You didn't do what I asked you to do. When did he realize his mistake? His frustration was clear. He called him, oh, you rebels, do I have to bring water out of this rock? And he struck the rock twice. The rock did not have to be struck twice. It didn't have to be struck a second time. It was struck once back at Rephidim. Never again did it have to be struck. This is the same goes for the Messiah. That in his first coming, when he came to receive the waters of salvation, to receive the salvation that he brings through his sacrifice, he had to be beaten, he had to be crushed, he had to be pressed and pierced for our iniquities, for our sins, so that we could receive that salvation. The Messiah does not have to come again. He does not have to be beaten again, crushed again, hung on another tree for salvation to be had for anyone. When he comes to receive that salvation now, now that that's been done, all you have to do is speak. All you have to do is pray to the Lord, pray to the Messiah for that salvation. That's all anyone has to do in this modern day to receive that salvation from the Lord and receive that salvation from the Messiah is to pray and to speak. That's, that's the lesson that we have. Moses didn't realize that. Moses didn't see that. But for us to receive salvation, all you have to do is pray. Speak to the rock of salvation and life, which water represents life, comes forth abundantly and gives you life, nourishes you and, and allows you to, to live on. And you don't have to complain and grumble about it. All you have to do is speak. That's why this is here. This is why this story, that's why God told him, speak to the rock. Don't strike it, speak to it. So this is the lesson that we can learn. It's, it's the, the lesson is the caution to leadership, to not lose their cool in certain situations, even if you're dealing with grief, and to just listen to what the Lord has for you to, to do so that you are a, an example and a teaching to the people. Instead, Moses made the same mistake the children of Israel did. Got angry got contentious, spoke out, yelled out, just like they did when they approached him. Tit for tat. Didn't really work out well for Moses, unfortunately. The rest of our portion, as my time is running short, there's a couple of things I do want to get to. We have a story where the children of Israel wanted to pass through the land of Edom. These were the sons of Esau. And what it is, is the, the kingdom of Eden, Edom said, no, we will not let you pass through our land. So they instead just turned to go around. It's interesting here where that they asked for passage to travel through these lands. And... They weren't allowed to go, and they, so they didn't go through it. However, later in our Torah portion, our portion will end with the defeat of the kingdoms of Sihon and the kingdoms of Og because of this exact same thing. They went to these other people. They said, hey, can we pass through their land? And they said no. And then they came out to fight them. And the children of Israel conquered these kingdoms and, and destroyed and killed the kings. And it's like, why didn't that happen with the kingdom of Edom? Well, I believe what it is, is, is the kingdom of Edom, the, the sons of Esau, there's greater purpose and greater prophecy later to come with these people. The Lord's not done with these people yet, there, that there's a, a future prophecy having to do with these people. The prophet Obadiah speaks directly, the one chapter of Obadiah speaks to the, any sort of judgment that was going, it is going to come upon Edom in the latter days.
It talks about how that they will be at odds with their brother Judah. When they should have helped their brother Judah, they instead aided the enemies. And that there's a great judgment coming upon them. And you can read Obadiah and you can simply think. Think about modern day Palestinians. Think about the Arabs living in the Middle East who are always at odds with the kingdom of Israel. And that instead could be brothers to these people in the land, but instead are always adversaries and are always at odds with the children of Israel. So if you read the the prophet Obadiah and just think, think about the Palestinians, think about the descendants of Esau that could have been a part of this family and received these blessings that come through the children of Israel, but instead are always at odds with them. What also happens at the end of chapter 20 in our Torah portion is the death of Aaron. Aaron goes and it says it's time for him to die. He goes up on top of a mount, Mount Hor. He removes the garments of the high priest, gives them to his son. Eliezer becomes the new high priest of the children of Israel. And Aaron dies on the mountain. They go up, they change clothes, they come down and Aaron dies up there. It's kind of like he knew he was going to die. There was This was a sort of this interesting thing where it's like he didn't just die randomly in the camp. That this was a very, that was planned out exactly what this is going to be. In fact, Aaron, I believe, knew he was going up to the mountain and he was going to die. It's again, another parallel to the Messiah in our Torah portion where the Messiah going up to his sacrifice, knowing he's going to die... He goes up to a high, pla- high place, onto a mountain. He is called our high priest, which is what Aaron was, and he goes and dies. And so you can sum up this entire passage, starting at verse 22, with, this is the, talking about the death of the high priest in a high place. That is a parallel to the Messiah. That if he is our high priest, that there's a parallel that can be drawn out of this story as well. And the children of Israel and Moses, they mourned for Aaron for 30 days after this. A little bit different than when Miriam died. Too bad the children of Israel couldn't have waited long enough to properly mourn for Miriam. Perhaps that was the lesson learned when it came now for the death of Aaron here at the end of chapter 20. Chapter 20. Our portion continues with starting in chapter 21. Again, more stories and things about their traveling in the wilderness, where they went. There's one thing, one more thing I want to draw out here, another story that takes place. It's a shorter story, but again, one of the most powerful parallels to our Messiah. It starts in chapter, verse 4 of chapter 21. The journey from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became discouraged on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. That's the manna that tastes like you know honey pastries when it was cooked, and so they're calling that worthless when it comes freely to them every single day. That's, I can see the mistake there. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take, these ser- take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it up on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks on it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was, if the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent... He lived. Now, this parallel goes directly. We, if you've read the Gospels, you know the exact parallel with this. John chapter 3, verse 14 specifically says, You will know that you have seen the Son of Man when you see him lifted up as the serpent was on Moses' staff in the wilderness. 
you will know that you have seen the Son of Man. This is a prophecy. It's like this thing was put on a pole, lifted up. Anyone who looked upon it received life and received salvation. That is, we believe that in our Christian faith about the Messiah, that knowing by his sacrifice we are saved. That is one of the reasons why I don't necessarily feel comfortable with this in all places, but whenever people hang a crucifix on their wall, and this is done by the Catholics, they see this, when they see it, they see their salvation. On one hand, I think they go maybe a little too overboard with it, that it becomes kind of a kind of a thing where it's you're always witnessing that the death of the Messiah was not the greatest thing he did. It's when he was raised up out of the grave and ascended to heaven was the greatest thing the Messiah did, when he conquered the grave, not by his death. So I don't know if we should be glorifying the cross and the crucifixion. However, when anyone who has believed in the Messiah has at least seen or pictured the punishment he took for us, then that's when we know we have the salvation. That's when we know that the price has been paid. So I believe it's okay for someone to see a crucifix, to look upon him who was pierced, who was crushed, so that we know that we have salvation. But we must know also all of the other things and the great things and the, the greatest thing of him the tomb being empty and him conquering the grave and conquering death so that we know we have not just life, but eternal life. And we should have no fear of death because of our belief in the Messiah. That's what we can be encouraged by. And so here we have that simple prophecy here having to do with these serpents. Now, sometimes it takes an element of fear before we realize this. When I, whenever I read this story as a kid about the fiery serpents, I was pictured it as a bunch of snakes that were on fire. So anyone who has a fear of snakes, like me or my father, that's probably one of the most fearful things you could ever possibly imagine, is a snake slithering towards you and it happens to be on fire. But no, what it means is they were poisonous snakes, is what they were. They were venomous snakes. And people think that they were possibly cobras. Um, I tend to believe that it was actually the horned pit viper, uh, the horned viper of, of uh, Persia and Saudi Arabia. And that's actually one of the scariest looking snakes you could ever see when they got two horns on the top of their head. And so that's what I believe that it was, was this was a thing that created the fear in the children of Israel that caused them to realize this. Sometimes that's what we need in our lives, in our walk of faith, is that sometimes oppression comes so that we then realize the salvation that we need. We know that our needs need to be met. We know that we need water. We know that we need food. And the Messiah being the bread of life, that if you eat of him, you'll never be hungry again. He's a drink. If you drink of him, you'll never be thirsty again. And sometimes we know our basic needs. But then there's other times that we can be a little too stubborn in our lives and in our walk of faith. And sometimes we need sort of a, something, some element of fear that strikes fear into the hearts of someone to realize the salvation that they need. Hopefully, we can be the people that have learned to not grumble or complain, maybe from the stories that happened prior to. I'm sure there were some people that all the other contentions that took place in the children of Israel, that somebody stopped complaining and they learned their lesson back then. Others, it took another rebellion for them to learn. Others, it took losing water for them to learn. Others, it took fiery serpents to come into the camp and venomous snakes to bite the people, causing people to die before they realized, you know what, maybe I should turn to the Lord for these things. One of the things that I would encourage us as we read these stories, as we go, let us learn our lesson the first time. Let us learn it the first time we hear the story, that we learn this lesson. It's like, I'm going to take that to heart, and this isn't going to be a problem for me anymore. 
But the problem is that sometimes things come up and we become stubborn and we get complacent and we do the, we get into a place where the Lord needs to kind of give us a wake-up call sometimes to get our attention turned back to Him, knowing who is the true God of Israel. Is it any other, some other God that I've seen before? No. It's the unseen God who created us in, our, in His image. Is it any, what does the salvation come in? Is it because Moses hit a rock? No, it's, that's not because Moses did it. It's because that water came out because God did it. And for somebody to be miraculously healed, this wasn't a doctor that came in and gave antivenom to everyone so that they were healed. No, it was the miraculous nature of God said to do this, and then they were healed. That's what we need our belief to be. It needs to be a strong belief that when we hear the words of the Lord, when we see what God has put before us, that we know it came from Him and only could come from Him. That's what we need to be encouraged by. When we have our salvation, the salvation that we've received from our belief in Yeshua the Messiah, that we hold on to that and that we, we believe and hopefully we don't need correction. We don't get contentious. We don't complain. It's the biggest thing that we can counsel with anybody. You can, you can say this anywhere secularly. Count good counsel. Don't complain. Don't be a jerk. Be nice. Be kind. Speak. Ask a question. When you want to complain, instead ask a, a reasonable question. All of these things are good counsel in all things. That if we can learn this lesson, we can live. We can dwell with our fellow brethren. We can be encouraged and strengthened in our faith in Yeshua the Messiah in all of these things. Amen? All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on the Sabbath day. We thank you for your teaching, your instruction. Father, we thank you for all the words and the stories of old. And Father, I thank you for all the parallels that we see with our Messiah. And may we, these lessons be taken to heart, whether we learn them from the Torah or whether we learn them from the stories of the Messiah or whether the combination of the two, Father, gives us all confidence in knowing this is your plan. This is your purpose for your people to profess a faith in you, to speak to you and receive the waters of salvation. For we have sinned. Many of us, we've sinned. We come from a place of uncleanliness, Lord. And Father, you make a way for us to become clean. You wash away our sins and our impurities so that we can be a holy people before you as you have called us to be. To be holy as you are holy. May we all be priests in your kingdom in some way, form or fashion, Lord, in which that we serve you and we serve our brethren and the people around us. We love you. We bless you. We thank you for all these stories of old. Continue to encourage us as we go through the stories of the Torah cycle, as we continue and as we approach the fall feasts, Lord. We look forward to uh, seeing your will be done, Lord, in all the ways that you will manifest yourself in our lives and in the lives of our brethren. So we love you and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Nathalanu Torah Temet V'chayelam Natabetocheinu Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Good to see everyone. If you would, turn in your Bibles now to the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. Um, this week's Torah portion about the ashes of the red heifer, and specifically about um, the water coming from the rock and Moses striking it. Uh, it ties into John chapter 3 in the most interesting sort of way.
Um, John chapter 3, I'm sure all of you are familiar with uh, the famous verse 16. In fact, our portion begins at verse 10 and extends through, uh, I guess it's verse 30. And No, not verse 30. It extends through uh, verse 21. And and this is the conversation between Yeshua and and Nicodemus, who is a religious leader, who is a Pharisee, and uh, one of the rulers of Israel at that time. Nicodemus comes to him at night. So right off the bat, you might be asking yourself, well, what is the connection between this and the other passage that we have in Hukat? Hukat has some of the most powerful messianic prophecies in it. This is where Moses is giving you hints of things that the Messiah will be about and will do. Uh, the first and foremost, the ash of the red heifer, is the heifer, if you recall, is taken out of the camp. And there it is slain, is completely consumed. But the ash of the red heifer mixed with water has the power of purification from death. And when a person comes into contact with a dead person, they're uh, unclean. They cannot go into the temple, cannot approach the altar. But an ash, a bit of ash and water sprinkled upon the person would remove that stigma of death. Um, if you recall, Yeshua, when he was arrested and convicted, they took him out of the camp. They took him out of the city, and there they slew him, you know, crucified him. And it's from his life that we get to be, we receive eternal life. It's from his death that we get the power to live eternally and to be raised from the grave to overcome the problem of death. So you have this incredible picture, this this hint of what the Messiah does for us. Oh, by the way, just to add to it, Yeshua was taken out to the place where they took the red heifer out to, to be put on the pyre and for it to be consumed. Yeshua went to the same place. They took him out to where the, the red heifer was taken. Very powerful prophecy, speaks very directly to Yeshua. The second part that I want to draw your attention to is when Moses and the children of Israel run out of water. And the people begin to complain that they don't have water. And so uh, Moses goes before the Lord and he directs him to take his staff, the elders with him, to go up and to speak to the rock and that God will bring water out of the rock for the people. And, of course, you remember the story that he struck the rock and as a result, Moses lost his ticket to the promised land. He got to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt up to the Jordan, but not across the Jordan, not into the promised land. And the parallels, the, the pictures of the rock and the water coming forth from the rock, and this is how the people live, speaks to all of the themes that Yeshua spoke of himself that he was the water that would spring up to eternal life for all of the people. And water is the great symbol of eternal life um, in the scriptural teaching and uh, there in the land of Israel. It's very profound when you see water because it means life. No water, no life. 
uh, very, very profound uh, word picture and metaphor that's used throughout the scripture for it. So here are these things out of the Torah Moses has been teaching us about, but they have incredible implication on understanding the Messiah. Now, I want to take you to John chapter 5, the last two verses, very briefly, before we go back to chapter 3, in which that um, uh, Yeshua is having a conversation with religious leaders, and in verse 46 and 47, he says this, For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. One of the great questions to ask uh, ourselves as we read this, where did Moses write about the Messiah? This particular Torah portion is a beautiful example of that, an incredible example of that. And then he goes on verse 47 to say, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Literally, if you don't see the picture, the Ramez level picture of the red heifer being taken out, that this is what solves the death problem. If you don't see the water that comes from the rock, that the water is the symbol of eternal life, and that he freely gives us eternal life from the rock, you do, of course, know the Messiah is referred to as the rock of our salvation. Um, and if you see those things and understand them, then, because you believe what Moses wrote, then the words of Yeshua make sense. That's exactly what Yeshua is speaking of for himself. That's the, that's the things he's doing. And so you get the connection. Here's what Moses said. Here's what Yeshua is doing and saying. And they match. And this is the evidence for us to conclude that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah. It's part of the evidence. Now, John is giving these examples in his Gospels because... The purpose of the book of John, as stated by John in chapter 20, I've written these things that you might believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah and that believing in him you might receive eternal life. So the whole purpose of John is to bring those points out. So with that said, let's examine John chapter 3 because Yeshua is going to have a very serious conversation with a religious man, a religious leader. By the way, this man, Nicodemus, was very well known. He had an excellent reputation in the faith. And he was a man who did love God, was seeking God. But he wasn't quite sure what to do with Yeshua. So he goes to him at night and he confesses to him, look, I understand you can't possibly do the things you're doing, the miracles you're doing without God doing those. That the, I clearly see the evidence of that God is doing this, but I'm still perplexed. I'm still trying to figure out how do you fit into all of this? How, how, what are you in this whole process? And that was what led to the conversation where Yeshua says to him, you, you have to be born again. And, of course, he's perplexed about what in the world does that mean? And that's when we're going to pick up the the uh, point here at verse 10, because when Nicodemus is all confused about the idea of being born again, being born of the Spirit, uh, this is when Yeshua uh, asks him. Verse 10, Yeshua answered, said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? 
Now, the very nature of the question demands the following. If you're a teacher of Israel, you're a teacher of the Torah, and that you believe what Moses has said and so forth, then you should have already have concluded that a man has to be born again and born of the Spirit of God uh, to have eternal life, you know, with God. Let me illustrate. Let me take you back to some of the base teaching of the Torah. If you remember the story of Adam, Adam was created, made a man, and he sinned. He brought sin into the world, and as a result, he died. Now, when Adam was first made, he was made in the image of God. Okay? So he had been made by God, but he brought sin in, it brought about death. Now, you've heard the expression, and every time I hear a believer say this, I try to correct him on this. They say, well, we're all made in the image of God. Mankind's made in the image of God. That is true for Adam. That is true for him. That is not true for the descendants of Adam. The scripture goes on to tell us in Genesis chapter 5 that all men are now made in the image of Seth, the son of Adam. We're made in the image of a man that was before us. And that man that was before us is the man who brought sin into the world and death. And therefore, every one of us are born as mortals. So we know it's intentionally that we should be made in the image of God. But the fact of the matter is we're not. Adam was, but that changed with Adam. And now we're made in the image of Seth. We're made in the image of the descendants of Adam, uh, which is not to our good. So how are we going to solve this problem? How do we get back to the garden? How do we get back to the original status when God created us and breathed uh, life into us and we became living souls? How do we get back to that original thing? Well, let me go ahead and just tell you how it's got to be done. You've got to be born again. You have to have what Adam got when God breathed into him and the Holy Spirit entered into him and he became a living soul. You have to have God breathe back into you. You have to be reborn of the Spirit of God. Now, that's fundamental. The reason why that gets clouded over and people don't recognize that from the teaching is, first of all, we don't have a lot of people teaching the Torah portion on that particular segment. And we all go around saying about everybody in the world, oh, we're all made in the image of God. False. That is not true. The scripture emphatically says all of us are made in the image of Adam and his descendants. We're not made in the image of God anymore. We used to be, but we're not anymore. But that's what needs to be corrected. So when Yeshua is posing this question after he just talked about being born again of the Spirit, and Nicodemus is confused, he doesn't seem to understand, it's natural for then Yeshua to ask the question, are you a teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Because there's a very clear implication that if you are teaching what Moses says, you should know this already. You should know you're made in the image of Adam, not in the image of God, and we got to get that turned around if we're going to have eternal life in the Lord. 
He goes on further to say, reading now from John chapter 3, beginning at verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Well, this is... This is a very simple, straightforward, profound way of describing why is there such a disconnect on coming to the proper understanding of the things the Lord has said. Let me put it in a more modern way for you here as messianics. If you never listen or learn the teaching of Moses, what makes you think you understand the great plan of God and bringing the Messiah here to save us? What makes you think you understand that? Because fundamental and the very foundation of the understanding of the teaching of the Messiah to come to us is to solve the problem that Moses explained to us from the very beginning. And that the allusions and metaphors and the pictures and the hints that Moses gave to us is the evidence to substantiate that Yeshua of Nazareth is, in fact, the promised Messiah that was spoken of by Moses. You have to take the evidence of Moses compared to what the word and deed of Yeshua and see if it will track. This is the subject that Yeshua is now confronting him with. If, if I come to you and I explain some earthly things to you and you don't get it, on that, how in the world are you going to keep track of when I start explaining heavenly things to you? By the way, you live here on the earth. You're very familiar with the earth. You don't live in heaven. You don't see heaven. So how in the world are you going to understand heavenly things if you can't even process the earthly things? If you can't process the original instruction on this, how are you going to understand when I come and I talk to you about the fulfillment of it? That's the logic that uh, Yeshua is using with Nicodemus. Very profound logic, by the way. Uh, and we should also take note of that logic and examine for ourselves what is the basis of why I believe. What am I basing that on? Am I basing that on things I've learned from Moses and the prophets? Or is this things that I'm just accepting and assuming is true because <clears throat> my Sunday school teacher or my pastor said so? Now, I'll be real honest with you about this. I understand why a lot of my brethren haven't really processed this very well. Because they went through the same issue I went through. And that is, the, I was subject to the teachers that I had. And if my teachers didn't know and didn't understand, well, then it wasn't possible for them to teach me those things. You can only teach someone as far as you are yourself. And it's like going on a journey. If you want to help somebody go on the journey, you can't lead them any farther than you've been on the journey. You know, you have to at some point hand them over so they can go forward beyond what you are. But you, you, you're not, you're subject to limitations. And I, uh, in the course of my life, look back, I was subject to my teachers and their limitations. Thank goodness because of the faithfulness of the Lord to me and his mercy and his grace, 
He's taken me beyond my early teachers and shown me the things. And what I'm trying to do with you is to lead you a little bit further, to show you a more perfect, a more mature way of the things of the Lord. But the idea is don't just stop with what I'm saying. Go and ask the Lord himself and let him be your real teacher and show you those things. Now, the um, so we have this understanding. Yeshua has now explained the Nicodemus. I need to explain things that were earthly, and I need to explain what the heavenly concept is. And Yeshua is going to, in a summary way, encapsulate what Moses, all the different things that Moses said about the Messiah, about him. To it, I want you to listen very closely because he's quickly reviewing the teaching of Moses concerning the Messiah. And he says here in verse 13, And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Now maybe you're not aware of this, but if you go back and do the study of Moses to understand the Messianic prophecies, Yeshua just gave the greatest prophecy of the Messiah and the least prophecy of the Messiah that's given by Moses. Um, the greatest one is the story of Moses coming out to the mountain. God coming down on the mountain. Moses going up and down from the mountain, bringing the word of the Lord, bringing the tablets to the people, bringing the instruction of the Torah. This is the picture of the Messiah comes to the earth, and he brings with him the instruction from God for us. This is what God promised he would do. I will send someone like me from the mountain who will come down to you and he will speak the word of the Lord to you. And I will require it of you. And we made that agreement at Mount Sinai when God first spoke to us and the children of Israel were frightened out of their minds. And they said, Moses, you go up and get the word. You come down and tell us. Then we'll do it. And the Lord said, okay, that's a good deal. And, oh, by the way, I'm going to send somebody from the mountain. He's going to come down and he's going to speak the word. And I'm expecting you to follow. Just like when I spoke from the mountain. So that's the prophecy of the Messiah to come. Moses going up and down the mountain is the picture of the Messiah beginning at the throne of God, descending to us here on the earth, speaking the word of God to us and ascending back into heaven. That's the picture of Yeshua of Nazareth, being born into this world, being brought to us, one of our own countrymen, um, and speaking plainly as a man to us. That's what we said we wanted to do. I want to hear the voice of a man tell me I don't want to hear the voice of God from the mountain anymore. I want to listen to how man would say it to me. So he did. And then as a result of the events... His sacrifice, the work of redemption, and he ascends back to heaven. And we have the testimony of all of that. So the greatest prophecy that Moses gives to us is this whole dynamic of uh, ascending and descending from the mountain, which represents heaven and the earth where the children of Israel are at. 
The second and the smallest prophecy, in fact, in the in Moses' writings, there's only two verses given to this prophecy. And it's about when the people uh, spoke against the Lord, and the Lord brought a judgment upon them by causing fiery serpents to come up out of the earth and bite the people. And these fiery serpents were bringing death. This was harming the people greatly. They cried out to the Lord, cried out to Moses. And when Moses went in and uh, went before the Lord, the Lord told him, he said, okay, this is what we're going to do to save the people. I want you to take a, make a bronze serpent, wrap it around your staff, Moses. Uh, so it wraps around. And then all I want you to do is go out amongst the people and just raise it up, lift it up. And anybody who will look at it will live. If they refuse to look up and look at it, they die. Now, think about that for a moment. Let's put yourself in the, in the camp of Israel the day this is all going on. The word is out that God is going to save us from the fiery serpents. And all we have to do is we have to look at Moses' staff that's been lifted up. It's got the serpent on it. All we have to do is look and we'll live. Now, here's, here's this brother who's laying in his tent, very ill from being bit by one of these snakes. He's dying. And you walk in with the good news. Hey, good news. God has shown Moses what's to do. He's to lift his staff up. All you have to do is look, and you will live. He said, all I have to do is just look and live. Uh, I'm not sure I believe that. Yeah, yeah, that's the word from the Lord. That, that's what the Lord has said. All you have to do is look and live. By the way, the sages of Israel say that the reason why that was done, and the reason why God did that, and the reason why it worked, was because when you looked up at the serpent, which was the symbol of what had brought the harm to you, and you saw it on the staff of Moses, you realized that you were guilty and that you really do deserve death. But because of the word of the Lord and the grace of God, you'll be healed and you'll live. And that all credit goes to the Lord, that you recognize your own sin before God, your own corruption before the Lord. And, oh, by the way, that's exactly how every one of us come to salvation in the Messiah. Are we willing to look and see the sacrifice that was made by the Messiah, him lifted up on the cross, raised up above us? All we have to do is look and we'll live. All we have to do is recognize it's our sins being judged and he's our redeemer and he's our savior. He's paying the price for me so that I can be forgiven so I can receive eternal life. It's that simple. But a lot of people can't come to terms with that. Um, and we know, we don't have the numbers, but we know there was a lot of people in the camp, they refused to look. And we know they died. Those that were willing to look, those that were willing to look up, lived. Um, an incredible, only two verses on this subject, uh, and they, they, we call this the shortest prophecy, the smallest prophecy uh, given by Moses about the work of the Messiah. So here's the greatest prophecy, the smallest prophecy, and that is what Yeshua is reminding Nicodemus. Don't you remember what Moses taught about the Messiah, about me? 
Don't you remember the greatest prophecy? He who ascends and descends. Don't you remember, you know, Moses lifting up the staff? By the way, the day is coming when I'll be lifted up like Moses' staff, and then you'll see the I am God. And those that look up will live. And so he's reviewing that teaching with him, trying to provoke within Nicodemus his previous instruction of Moses and say, don't you see it? Don't you get it? Those are earthly things in front of you, but we're really talking about heavenly things here. We're talking about very spiritual things that Moses was trying to explain to you. And that's what Yeshua came doing. He came teaching spiritual things. How to deal with sin. How to avoid sin. How to uh, call upon the Lord. How to receive eternal life. How to walk in the light, not in the darkness. You know, he, he taught all of those spiritual things, and he used all the earthly things around him to try to explain it to the people. There were some who saw it, and there's some who just couldn't get it. And the same thing is true today for us. There are some who see and can sense what the Lord is doing and saying, and there's others they just don't get it. My teaching, uh, there are some who hear my teaching, and they're not hearing me, Monty. They're hearing the Holy Spirit speaking through my voice to them and speaking a spiritual truth to them. Those are the people that look and live. Those are the people who see the way the Lord is expressing to us. They're, they're seeing the spiritual words and spiritual thoughts. They're not looking at it like it's foolishness or secular things. They can see the heavenly things that the Lord is trying to express. So Yeshua is explaining that to Nicodemus, reviewing, if you will, for him. And that's what leads us to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. In a nutshell, here's what Moses has been trying to explain about the Messiah. How many of us, when we were younger, like in my case when I was in the church, how many of you heard the message that Moses was actually teaching that God would send his son into the world so that we might receive forgiveness and eternal life? How many of you heard that's the teaching of Moses? I never heard it once. You want to know why? Because they didn't know it. And they can't teach it because they're not there. They haven't come to terms with that. And the same thing is true in the day that Yeshua is speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is an established ruler and teacher of Israel, and he doesn't get it yet. And Yeshua is trying to remind him. We as messianics, guess what it is that theologically that we're really doing when we go out and teach? Are we... Are we uh, laying brand new things out? Well, the contrast seems brand new, that's for sure. But the reality is we're taking you back to old things that Moses said and making them come alive. 
We're taking you back to the original teaching, just like Yeshua is trying to do with Nicodemus. Hey, listen to what Moses had to say. So we as Messianics, we're learning things like, oh, you mean the Sabbath is not just a Jewish thing? Oh, that God made that when he made the creation for all of mankind? You know, just like when he put the sun and the moon and the stars for the benefit of everybody that lives on the earth. He created the Sabbath, the last day of the week, for rest, ceasing from his labors, creating the world. And that belongs to all people. Yeah, that's the teaching of Moses. Instead of the religious man teaching, oh, the Sabbath is for the Jews. It's not for us. He can only teach that which he has learned himself before. And if he's not listening to the original instruction, he's not going to know it. So we as messianics, we're going back to the original instruction. And we're suddenly discovering, wow, I I didn't realize it said that. I'd never heard that before. Well, praise the Lord that he's being faithful to us in these days and taking us back to Moses and we're learning And we're getting back to what the Lord said to begin with. And walking in that, which is walking in the light, instead of walking in the shadows and darkness of men. So he reminds him of this was, and this has been, and this will be the purpose of the Messiah coming into the world. Is for that. Now I gotta, I'm gonna take a sidebar for a moment because whenever I teach this, I always like to share this personal anecdote. Uh, John 3.16 is the very first verse I ever committed to memory uh, from the Bible. And there's a lot of people I know that they, it's the first one they've ever memorized as well. So I fit within the traditional sort of thing. Let me tell you how I came to do that. My maternal grandmother, um, when I was seven years old, uh, took me to church, uh, the church where he's at. And they had this custom that on Sunday evenings, uh, before the service actually got started, that children, individuals, could come up to the front and they would quote a scripture. And if they did it accurately and correctly, all they had to do was say one, they received the Bible. And man, this was a cool Bible. This was a, a zipper on the outside edge, had red letters for all the words of Jesus, and it was a very cool Bible and, and uh, so forth. And you could get a Bible. Well, I'm seven years old. I've been going to church with Grandma now for a while, and everybody's got Bibles. I don't have a Bible, and this is a cool way for me to get a Bible. And I saw other friends and kids getting them. And so I said, I, I want to do this. So I went up and I said, okay, how, how do I memorize the verses? How, how do I get that? And they said, well, here's a list of verses. And they gave all the references. And here's a list of verses for you to memorize. You take, pick one and, and give it. And then you share it in front of everybody. And if you share it in front of everybody, you'll get a Bible. So, man, I'm working hard this week. I get the list. And I pick a verse out. And the verse I pick out is John 3.16. There's probably a dozen verses there, but for some reason I picked that verse and um, worked on it all week long. Finally, Sunday night comes, and I'm very excited. I'm getting ready to do it. And um, and uh, I went forward, and I said, yeah, I have a verse. Uh, I want to get a Bible. 
And they said, okay, very good. Um, you know, my name was Billy in those days. They said, Billy, come on up for it. And I stood up in front of all the people. That was like incredible. It was the first time in my life ever standing in front of an assembly where there's there, all the faces are looking back at me. So I had a little heart flutter, you know, going on about this. But I'm convincing myself, I'm going to remember, I'm going to remember. So they said, okay, share your verse. And I went, John 3, 16. <laughs> and they went, okay, we'll give the verse. I said, what are you, what are you talking about, give the verse? That, that, that's the part I memorized. Little did I understand, there's actually words that go with these references. And that was the part you're supposed to memorize. And uh, they didn't give me a Bible that night. you know. And I had to go back. And my uh, great-grandmother, um, on my mother's side, um, she had John 3.16 that had been made in, in this metal plaque thing. And it hung in her kitchen. And there was the verse. And uh, rather looking at a Bible... I was over there, my great-grandmother Clark's, and I was studying all the words on there and trying to learn how to do it. And she was helping me to memorize that verse and checking me. Well, the next week I was able to successfully go and share the verse, and sure enough, I got a Bible. So for me, this verse carries personally great profound understanding. This was my first step in learning spiritual things for God for myself, uh, rather than just repeating what Grandma said. And uh, it was the first time that the Word of God began to speak into my heart about what that is. In the effort of memorizing it, it forced me to concentrate and to understand the words. Now, that's the reason why those words are so popular with many people, because it's a summary statement. It's a summary statement from the Messiah explaining everything that Moses has been trying to teach, what he's there to do, and what is going to be accomplished by him coming to be Savior and Redeemer for us. In just a couple of simple sentences, he says it. And that's the reason why the words stick with us so profoundly. Let me go ahead and continue on verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe in him has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men love the darkness more than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed." But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifested as having been wrought in God. Guess what? When you come and you learn the things of the Lord, you discover that you're walking in the light. And things are being revealed to you. They're being manifested to you. And one of the big things that's being manifested to you is, oh my goodness, it's not me, it's what God is doing in my life. It's what God has done for me, not what I do for God. Therefore, salvation is based 
on believing in God and His grace, His favor to us, the things God has done for us. That is how you receive the gift of eternal life. It's not based on righteous deeds or coming up to a certain standard that men specify. It is coming to that. That's what walking in the light does. It shows you the things of the Lord and you uh, clearly there with the Lord in the midst of it. Uh, so this portion uh, about the ash of the red heifer, the water from the rock, the profundity of how it is the remez level, the Torah showing the Messiah. Here is Yeshua giving a summary level teaching on some of the prophecies of Moses. Amen. All right. Shabbat Shalom. and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I'll sit on a Friday night bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around saying Shabbat Shalom Everybody sing Shalom.